Section 32 of the Underground Railroad Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Underground Railroad Part 2 by William Still. Section 32. Heavy Reward. $2,600 reward. Ran away from the subscriber on Saturday night. November 15th, 1856. Josiah and William Bailey and Peter Pennington. Joe is about 5 feet 10 inches in height, of a chestnut color, bald head, with a remarkable scar on one of his cheeks, not positive on which it is, but think it is on the left, under the eye. Has intelligent countenance, active and well made. He is about 28 years old. Bill is of a darker color, about 5 feet 8 inches in height, stammers when a little confused well made and older than joe well dressed but may have pulled kersey on over their other clothes peter is smaller than either of the others about twenty-five years of age dark chestnut color five feet seven or eight inches high a reward of fifteen hundred dollars will be given to any person who will apprehend the said joe bailey and lodge him safely in the jail at easton talbot county maryland and three hundred dollars for bill and eight hundred dollars for peter w r hewlett john c henry t wright when this arrival made its appearance it was at first sight quite evident that one of the company was a man of more than ordinary parts both physically and mentally likewise taking them individually their appearance and bearing tended largely to strengthen the idea that the spirit of freedom was rapidly gaining ground in the minds of the slaves, despite the efforts of the slaveholders to keep them in darkness. In company with the three men, for whom the above large reward was offered, came a woman by the name of Eliza Noki. As soon as the opportunity presented itself, the active committee, feeling an unusual desire to hear their story, began the investigation by inquiring as to the cause of their escape, etc., which brought simple and homely but earnest answers from each. These answers afforded the best possible means of seeing slavery in its natural, practical workings, of obtaining such testimony and representations of the vile system as the most eloquent orator or able pen might labor in vain to make clear and convincing. Although this arrival had obviously been owned by men of high standing, the fugitives themselves innocently stated that one of the masters, who was in the habit of flogging adult females, was a moderate man. Josiah Bailey was the leader of this party, and he appeared well qualified for this position. He was about twenty-nine years of age, and in no particular physically did he seem to be deficient. He was likewise civil and polite in his manners, and a man of good common sense. He was held and oppressed by William H. Hewlett, a farmer and dealer in ship timber, who had besides invested in slaves, to the number of forty head. In his habits he was generally taken for a moderate and fair man, though he was in the habit of flogging the slaves, females as well as males, after they had arrived at the age of maturity. This was not considered strange or cruel in Maryland. Josiah was the foreman on the place, and was entrusted with the management of hauling the ship timber, and through harvesting and busy seasons was required to lead in the fields. He was regarded as one of the most valuable hands in that part of the country, being valued at two thousand dollars. 
Three weeks before he escaped, Joe was stripped naked and flogged very cruelly by his master, simply because he had a dispute with one of the fellow servants, who had stolen, as Joe alleged, seven dollars of his hard earnings. This flogging produced in Joe's mind an unswerving determination to leave slavery or die, to try his luck on the Underground Railroad at all hazards. The very name of slavery made the fire fairly burn in his bones. Although a married man, having a wife and three children, owned by Hewlett, he was not prepared to let his affection for them keep him in chains. So Anna Maria, his wife, and his children, Ellen, Anna Maria, and Isabella, were shortly widowed and orphaned by the slave lash. William Bailey was owned by John C. Henry, a large slaveholder and a very hard one, if what William alleged of him was true. His story certainly had every appearance of truthfulness. A recent brutal flogging had stiffened his backbone, and furnished him with his excuse for not being willing to continue in Maryland, working his strength away to enrich his master, or the man who claimed to be such. The memorable flogging, however, which caused him to seek flight on the Underground Railroad, was not administered by his master, or on his master's plantation. He was hired out, and it was in this situation that he was so barbarously treated. Yet he considered his master more in fault than the man to whom he was hired, but redress there was none, save to escape. The hour for forwarding the party by the committee came too soon to allow time for the writing of any account of Peter Pennington and Eliza Noki. Suffice it to say that in struggling through their journey, their spirits never flagged. They had determined not to stop short of Canada. They truly had a very high appreciation of freedom, but a very poor opinion of Maryland. Slave Trader Hall is foiled. Robert McCoy, alias William Donor. In October 1854, the committee received per steamer, directly from Norfolk, Virginia, Robert McCoy and Elizabeth Saunders. Robert had constantly been in the clutches of the Negro Trader Hall for the last sixteen years, previous to his leaving being owned by him. He had, therefore, possessed very favourable opportunities for varied observation and experience relative to the trader's conduct in his nefarious business, as well as for witnessing the effects of the auction block upon all ages, rending asunder the dearest ties, despite the piteous wails of childhood or womanhood, parental or conjugal relations. But no attempt will be made to chronicle the deeds of this dealer in human flesh. Those stories fresh from the lips of one who had just escaped were painful in the extreme, but in the very nature of things some of the statements are too revolting to be published. In lieu of this fact, except the above allusions to the trader's business, this sketch will only refer to Robert's condition as a slave, and finally as a traveller on the Underground Railroad. Robert was a man of medium size, dark mulatto, of more than ordinary intelligence. His duties had been confined to the house and not to the slave pen. As a general thing, he had managed, doubtless through much shrewdness, to avoid very severe outrages from the trader. On the whole, he had fared about as well as the generality of slaves. Yet, in order to free himself from his miserable life, he was willing, as he declared, to suffer almost any sacrifice. Indeed, his conduct proved the sincerity of this declaration, as he had actually been concealed five months in a place in the city, where he could not possibly avoid daily suffering of the most trying kind. His resolve to be free was all this while maturing. The trader had threatened to sell Robert, and to prevent it Robert thus took out. 
Successfully did he elude the keen scent and grasp of the hunters, who made diligent efforts to recapture him. Although a young man, only about twenty-eight years of age, his health was by no means good. His system had evidently been considerably shattered by slavery, and symptoms of consumption, together with chronic rheumatism, were making rapid headway against the physical man. Under his various ills, he declared, as did many others from the land of bondage, that his faith in God afforded him comfort and hope. He was obliged to leave his wife Eliza in bonds, not knowing whether they should ever meet again on earth. But he was somewhat hopeful that the way would open for her escape also. After reaching Philadelphia, where his arrival had long been anticipated by the Vigilance Committee, his immediate wants were met, and in due order he was forwarded to New Bedford, where, he was led to feel, he would be happy in freedom. Scarcely had he been in New Bedford one month before his prayers and hopes were realised with regard to the deliverance of his wife. On hearing of the good news of her coming, he wrote as follows. New Bedford, November 3rd, 1859. Dear Sir, I embrace this opportunity to inform you that I received your letter with pleasure. I am enjoying good health and hope that these few lines will find you enjoying the same blessing. I rejoice to hear from you. I feel very much indebted to you for not writing before. But I have been so busy that is the cause. I rejoice to hear of the arrival of my wife and hope she is not sick from the rolling of the sea. And if she is not, please to send her on here Monday with a six-barrel wallion and a rifle to guard her up against my residence. I thank you kindly for the good that you have done for me. Give my respects to Mrs. Still. Tell her I want to see her very bad, and you also I will come, but I am afraid, yet to venture. I received your letter the second, but about the first of spring I hope to pay you a visit or next summer. I am getting something to do every day. I will write on her arrival and tell you more. Mr. R. White sends his love to you and your family, and says that he is very much indebted to you for his not writing, and also he desires to know whether his clothes has arrived yet or not, and if they are, please to express them on to him, or if at present, by Mrs. Donner. Not any more at present, I remain your affectionate brother, William Donner. By the same arrival, and similarly secreted, Elizabeth Francis, alias Ellen Saunders, had the good luck to reach Philadelphia. She was a single young woman, about twenty-two, with as pleasant a countenance as one would wish to see. Her manners were equally agreeable. Perhaps her joy over her achieved victory added somewhat to her personal appearance. She had, however, belonged to the more favoured class of slaves. She had neither been overworked nor badly abused. Elizabeth was the property of a lady a few shades lighter than herself. Elizabeth was a mulatto, by the name of Sarah Shepherd of Norfolk. In order the more effectually to profit by Elizabeth's labour, the mistress resorted to the plan of hiring out for a given sum per month. Against this usage, Elizabeth urged no complaint. Indeed, the only very serious charge she brought was to the effect that her mistress sold her mother away from her far south, when she was a child only ten years old. She had also sold a brother and sister to a foreign southern market. The reflections consequent upon the course that her mistress had thus pursued awakened Elizabeth to much study relative to freedom, and by the time that she had reached womanhood, she had very decided convictions touching her duty with regard to escaping. Thus, growing to hate slavery in every way and manner, she was prepared to make a desperate effort to be free. 
Having saved $35 by rigid economy, she was willing to give every cent of it, although it was all she possessed, to be aided from Norfolk to Philadelphia. After reaching the city, having suffered severely while coming, she was invited to remain until somewhat recruited. In the healthy air of freedom, she was soon fully restored, and ready to take her departure for New Bedford, which place she reached without difficulty, and was cordially welcomed. The following letter, expressive of her obligations for aid received, was forwarded soon after her arrival in New Bedford. New Bedford, Massachusetts, October 16, 1854. Mr. Still, Dear Sir, I now take my pen in my hand to inform you of my health, which is good at present, all except a cold I have got, but I hope when these few lines reach you, you may be enjoying good health. I arrived in New Bedford Thursday morning safely, and what little I have seen of the city I like very much. My friends were very glad to see me. I found my sister very well. Give my love to Mrs. Still, and also your dear little children. I am now out at service. I do not think of going to Canada now. I think I shall remain in this city this winter. Please tell Mrs. Still I have not met any person who has treated me any kinder than she did since I left. I consider you both to have been true friends to me. I hope you will think me the same to you. I feel very thankful to you indeed. It might be supposed out of sight, out of mind, but it is not so. I never forget my friends. Give my love to Florence. If you will come to this city, I will be very happy to see you. Kiss your dear little children for me. Please answer this as soon as possible, so that I may know how you receive this. No more at present. I still remain your friend, Ellen Saunders. Eliza McCoy, the wife of Robert McCoy, whose narrative has just been given, and who was left to wait in hope when her husband escaped, soon followed him to freedom. It is the source of great satisfaction to be able to present her narrative in so close proximity to her husband's. He arrived about the 1st of October, she about the 1st of November, following. From her lips, testimony of much weight and interest was listened to by several friends relative to her sufferings as a slave. On the auction block, and in a place of concealment seven months, waiting and praying for an opportunity to escape. But it was thought sufficient to record merely a very brief outline of her active slave life, which consisted of the following noticeable features. Eliza had been owned by Andrew Sigony of Norfolk, age about 38, mulatto, and a woman whose appearance would readily command attention and respect anywhere outside of the barbarism of slavery. She stated that her experience as a sufferer in cruel hands had been very trying, and that in fretting under hardships she had always wanted to be free. Her language was unmistakable on this point. Neither mistress nor servant was satisfied with each other. The mistress was so queer and hard to please that Eliza became heartily sick of trying to please her. An angel would have failed with such a woman. So, while matters were getting no better, but on the contrary were growing worse and worse, Eliza thought she would seek a more pleasant atmosphere in the north. In fact, she felt that it would afford her no little relief to allow her place to be occupied by another. When she went into close quarters of concealment, she fully understood what was meant and all the liabilities thereto. She had pluck enough to endure unto the end without murmuring. The martyrs in olden times who dwelt in dens and caves of the earth could hardly have fared worse than some of these way-worn travellers. After the rest, needed by one who had suffered so severely until her arrival in Philadelphia, she was forwarded to her anxiously waiting husband in New Bedford, where she was gladly received. 
from the frequent arrivals from virginia especially in steamers it may be thought that no very stringent laws or regulations existed by which offenders who might aid the underground railroad could be severely punished that the slaveholders were lenient indifferent and unguarded as to how this property took wings and escaped in order to enlighten the reader with regard to this subject it seems necessary in this connection to publish at least one of the many statutes from the slave laws of the south bearing directly on the aid and escape of slaves by vessels the following enactment is given as passed by the legislature of virginia in eighteen fifty six End of section thirty two